you're new with us this morning, and it looks like we've got a, a few. We're glad you're here. If you take a minute, we've got uh, Connect cards in the pew right in front of you. If you'd fill that out for us, we'd uh, really appreciate it. We're in the middle of a, a series about prayer and how we can look into Scripture uh, to learn how we pray, not just based on what we want prayer to be, but uh, what God tells us prayer truly can be. And in Europe in the Middle Ages, people had uh, a strong belief in the power of prayer, and they believed that the purer and simpler your life was, the more God would listen to you. And since monks were supposed to live pure and holy lives more than anyone else, their prayers were seen uh, as some kind of hotline to God. You could go to them, um, and their prayers would more readily receive the Father than anyone else's. So rich people and, and warriors of all kind would pay the monks to do their praying while they were off busy doing other things. And the Middle Ages, of course, were a time of uh, great conflict, or conflict. We probably know that. Lots of uh, wars and lots of soldiers were killed on the, the fields of battle. And at that time, the Catholic Church decided that uh, the command, thou shalt not kill, they were conflicted on it, but they felt that commandment also applied to killings that happened in war. And that misunderstanding led them to create a doctrine that to address this kind of violent and turbulent atmosphere that they were in. So, for instance, at the Battle of Hastings, the Catholic Church demanded that each soldier do 120 days of penance for every other soldier they had killed in that battle. So, someone like William the Conqueror, in his lifetime, he was responsible for the deaths of about 10,000 people. That meant he was required to do 1 million 200,000 days of penance. Uh, he'd have to pray for about 3,300 years to cleanse his soul. His penance would last to the year 4,366, which means today he would not be done. He'd still be working at it. He'd still be praying to God. So he figured, this is impractical. I can't do this. Uh, and instead of looking to the Bible for an answer for boldly going before God, he figured he was going to uh, found a string of abbeys where he would have groups of monks in there praying day and night for him. So he, he had uh, all these abbeys, and he said, for 18 years, you have to pray night and day, and then I will be cleansed of all my sins. Uh, that wasn't the practice that was very biblical, and it, it was pretty impractical, too. It wasn't available to most people, and we know God, he doesn't work like that. But people, we've had odd opinions of what prayer looks like all throughout history, and that's what happens when we don't pay attention to Scripture. We get all kinds of, of weird theologies. You know, too often we look at prayer, and we try to decide for ourselves what God wants from us instead of listening to what he tells us. We try uh, to invent a, a philosophy of prayer based on our current circumstances, our current needs, and our current desires, rather than relying on the eternal God's instructions. We, we ask, how can we make God answer our prayers right now, rather than asking Jesus to teach us to pray just like his disciples did uh, in Luke chapter 11. And that's why this month we've been focusing on the prayers we find in Scripture, like the one Abraham prayed here in Genesis chapter 18 that, that Roger read for us, because they teach us why God has given us this tremendous blessing. God, he was showcasing 
Abraham's prayer and other prayers throughout Scripture so we could see how prayer truly works. And as we see from Abraham praying here, biblical prayer, it often defies our expectations. The prayer that God highlights doesn't fall into the box we often put ourselves around prayer. You know, consider how Abraham prayed. There is a, a time that the Lord was looking at the city of Sodom, and he looked at Gomorrah and the cities around them as well, and he saw their sin. And from the letter by Jude, we know that they had given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, and were going to be made as an example for us, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so it seems the Lord is considering what has to be done. And so starting in verse 17 of Genesis 18, we read, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. And they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So we see here God, he's all knowing. He's able to perfectly discern sin from righteousness. And so when he looks at these cities, he will know whether the accusations against them are true. And if they are true, God is just and he punishes sin. And then in verse 22, we read, then the men turned away from there and he went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, and this is our prayer here, that Abraham is addressing himself directly to God. And he says, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city, would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a, a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as wicked for, or uh, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What an incredible thing to say in the presence of God. Verse 26 and the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will say or spare all the place for their sakes. And he goes on and, and brings it down, uh, saying, indeed, now I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there are five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for the lack of five? And so he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And so he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there be 40 found there. And so he said, I will do it, will not do it for the sake of 40. And then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. And he keeps going six times. He goes through this process. Yeah, you know, this prayer, it doesn't fit into what we generally expect. Without this passage here, I don't think I would ever recommend this kind of back and forth with God and with the almighty creator and judge. And yet here is Abraham. And not only does he survive this encounter, and not only does God seem to answer this request, but even more than that, God holds this prayer up as an example 
to everyone reading Scripture. This prayer is held up so that it could be honored. God ensured that we would read it today because, like all Scripture, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God gave us a record of this prayer so that we could learn from it. So what is there to learn? What is it about Abraham's prayer that we need to learn from today? Well, first, and I, I think somewhat obviously, Abraham, he was talking to God. And you might say, well, uh, of course he talked to God. And you know, that's what you think. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't use our prayers to address God. Too often, instead of talking to our Heavenly Father, we put on a show when we pray. We don't pray so much as to God as we pray for the people that we are praying around. Maybe uh, we do a, a King James Version kind of prayer. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not thy merciful ears to our prayer, but spare us, Lord most holy. Thou seest the needs of our hearts, and thou hast heard us the pleas of our minds. Speakest now, thy servant, and we could go on. And we hear those kinds of prayers sometimes. But how many times do we talk to our neighbors that way? We won't have many neighbors or many friends if we talk that way for too long. Of course we haven't. Nobody talks like that in normal conversation today. That kind of prayer uh, too often is uh, to impress those around us. Now, granted, not everyone who prays that way is doing it for show, but we know that God, he doesn't prefer old English over any other language. Uh, and if we are talking directly to him, we can speak in whatever language we most easily can communicate our praise and our love uh, to him. You know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, younger Christians, uh, we're swapping out older English and we're coming up with our own formulas too often. And we'll hear certain phrases and words repeated so we get a, a new formula. And again, not everyone who prays like that is putting on a show, but too often uh, that's its purpose. Now, but one of the most uh, frustrating types of prayers, and, and you'll hear preachers and elders and deacons pray this more than anyone else, is when a person gets up in front and prays not to God, but to the audience. They, they try to just instruct those around them with their prayers. They'll stand up at uh, a communion table and instruct people on uh, the doctrine surrounding communion or why they should give more money uh, in an offering. Our prayers, they must be informed by Scripture. And our public prayers, they should help the whole congregation direct their minds towards spiritual things. But if Abraham's prayer teaches me anything, it's that that is such a minuscule part of what we can truly accomplish in our prayers. You know, we can pray prayers that speak spiritual truths to a group of people, but we have to know that they are our main audience. You know, we are truly appealing directly to the throne of God when we pray because through Jesus, we are now his children. You know, James 2.23 says that Abraham was called a friend of God. And in this text, we see Abraham he was talking to God like a friend. He was talking directly. So first, Abraham, he prayed directly to God. He wasn't concerned with what people around him heard. He was talking to his father. His prayer wasn't for show. It was to directly petition the almighty creator and judge. Now, secondly, Abraham prayed humbly before God. You know, yeah, God was a friend of Abraham, and he was 
also God, though. He was majestic and, and powerful, and you don't approach God as if he owes you a favor, because just a hint, he doesn't owe us any favors. God is God, and, and frankly, the closer we get to God, the more we realize that, the more we realize that his ways are higher than our ways. You know, I read about uh, a family that, that spent the night out in a national park in, in Colorado. It was a cold night, and, and they had separate tents for the kids, um, and a little after uh, it got dark, one of the children brought a sleeping bag into the parents' tent, and parents asked him, what's wrong? Are you uh, getting cold? And he said, no, I, I was just looking up at all the stars that you can see here. You can't see them in the city. And I never knew how small I was. You know, the closer we get to God, the more that we are in God's presence, the more of him we can see, the more we realize just how small we are. How, how insignificant we must seem in his eyes. And yet scripture tells us the opposite over and over again, that we must be like a grain of sand in the universe to him. And yet he loves us individually. And that's why Abraham admitted how small he felt. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, Genesis 18, 27. I can't help but Think of Jesus praying in the garden. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, where even though he was completely in control, he humbled himself before his Father. Not my will, but yours be done. Biblical prayer is done in humility. But now, I think we need to get to the meat of this prayer, because I think you know, we are smart people here. I think that uh, if we were trying to figure out what prayer is supposed to look like, I, I think we'd realize it is supposed to be directed to the Father, no one else, and it is supposed to be done in humility. I think we know uh, that our sovereign Lord and Creator is greater than we are, and we should treat him with respect and praise when we address him, at least in theory. I think we understand those things. But this next thing that Abraham does, I don't think I would ever think up in a million years. Without the Bible, there is no way that I would expect this is what God truly wants from my prayers. So first, Abraham, he talked to God. Second, he was humble before God. And third, he was bold before God. He prayed repeatedly and confidently. And notice how Abraham, he just keeps coming back time and time again to the judge. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And God says, I will spare the city if there are only 50 righteous. Then Abraham asked, suppose five of them are of the 50 righteous are lacking, meaning 45 righteous. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And again, God says he would spare the city if he could find that many. And again, Abraham spoke and he said, suppose 40 are found there. And God said, if there are 40, he wouldn't destroy Sodom. Abraham speaks again, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. Yes, I will spare the city if there's only 30. And again, Abraham asked, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. Yes, if there are only 20, I will withhold my wrath. And lastly, Abraham says, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. But once again, suppose 10 are found there. And God grants that. And then he walks away. Abraham, he keeps coming back to God time and time again, six times in total. And it's like he's almost bargaining with God, haggling with God here. If we were trying to invent our own philosophy of what prayer should look like, I don't think this would ever 
come up. I don't think this would ever be a part of it. I, I would not think that God would appreciate this kind of boldness. And that's why it's important that we do not rely on our own understanding to figure out how to pray. But we look to God. We look to his word because far from making him upset, God records this prayer because he wants us to see Abraham's boldness. In Luke chapter 11, verse 5, Jesus tells his disciples a parable. Suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, let me, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness. In another translation, his shameless audacity. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, why did that man get up? It wasn't because of their friendship. It wasn't because of anything but his shameless audacity, his boldness. Just like God wants us to pray directly to him, just like he wants us to pray humbly before him, just as importantly, he wants us to pray boldly and confidently. Hebrews 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have boldness to enter into the very presence of God with full assurance because of Jesus' blood, so that we, like Abraham, can boldly ask God what we desire. That's why in Luke chapter 18, we're told Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up in Luke 18. Now, why should we always pray? Why should we not give up? Because we have the privilege to boldly enter into the presence of God and ask him what we wish. Now, all that being said, there is an interesting twist to this story. You remember what Abraham asked God to do. It wasn't to save Lot and his family. You know, maybe that's what we would say uh, if we haven't read it for a while, but it's not true. It, not once does in this prayer does Abraham ask God to save Lot. So what is Abraham asking for? He says, save the city, spare the city. Spare Sodom? You know, seriously, Sodom is described as being one of the, the most wicked cities that ever existed. Genesis 13, 13 tells us the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And throughout Scripture, Sodom was used as a classic example of evil. So this wicked city, this uh, pit of depravity, this evil abyss of immorality, this is the city that Abraham prays for God to spare? Hey, that doesn't make any sense, unless, unless that's what God wanted us to see. Yeah, I could be wrong, but I think this is one of the first prayers. I think it is, in fact, the first prayer we see recorded for us in Scripture. And as with all Scripture, if we read Romans 15:4, God took great pains to make sure that we would be able to read it. You know, Abraham's prayer was a prayer focused on the lost. Uh, and while God listens to all kinds of prayer. This is the kind of prayer that impresses him. 
And so it's the first prayer that God introduces us to. You see, God, he wanted to see Abraham pray for Sodom to be saved. Now, why would God want that? Why would God want Abraham to pray like that? Well, I think it's to help us understand the answer to this question. It comes from another question. How many people in Sodom deserved this? How many people in Sodom deserved to be rescued by God? Uh, there was no one, really. He goes through a list. If there's 50, save it. If there's 40, save them. If there's 10, save them. And then finally, when we get to the story of God sparing Lot and his family, we come down to four. But were they worthy of being saved? Well, kind of, sort of. Second Peter tells us that Lot was righteous in 2 Peter 2.7. He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. But Lot's righteous was tainted, right? We know that. If you recall, Lot, he had offered his daughters to the crowd uh, to sleep with, to protect his visitors. And I'm pretty sure that decision's not going to win Lot, the Father of the Year award by any means. Uh, he's been so long in Sodom that his uh, view of righteousness is tainted by now. So even his righteousness isn't full. He's not deserving of safety. Then there's Lot's wife, commanded by the angels not to look back at the city. And she disobeyed. She turned around and she looked back at the city and she regretted leaving the city that she had built her whole life in. And so she was turned to a pillar of salt. And then there's Lot's daughters. And they feared that they uh, wouldn't have children because where they were going, they, they wouldn't be able to find husbands. And so they got Lot drunk and they slept with him so they'd have the children they coveted. And their sons became the fathers of the nations of Moab and Ammon. And this family, it hardly sounds like the people who deserved to be saved. And so when we look at Sodom, there wasn't anyone there. When Abraham's praying this prayer, there wasn't anyone that would be listed among the righteous uh, who deserved to escape, not even Lot and his family. They all fell short of perfection, just as we do. You know, there's a lot of people who believe they are going to be saved at the judgment because they've lived good lives. They've helped little old ladies across the street. They've contributed to charities, may even regularly go to church. They feel their good deeds earn them enough brownie points to purchase them a seat at the throne of God. But it's not true. You know, they, we live in a, a land of unreality if we believe that. If we actually think that we have done enough to impress God, we truly don't know who God is and the greatness and the glory of him. It's not going to happen on our own. But Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus and says this, You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were all, by nature, children of wrath. You know what he's saying? It's saying that every single one of us, both you and I, were dead in our sins. Not one of us deserved to be rescued. Not one of us deserved to be saved. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh and were by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else. We were unworthy. But, and Paul continues, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, we didn't deserve to be saved. And through Christ, God saved us anyways. And that's why 
we can enter the throne room of God. We can be washed of uh, an evil conscience. That's why we can look uh, to our left. We can look to our right. And no matter who or what we see, we know the tremendous love that God has for them because he showed me love when I didn't deserve it. And that's why we can pray directly to our almighty creator, both with humility, but also with boldness because of Christ, because he loved me when I was unworthy. That's how I want to start out this week in that kind of prayer. So let's pray. Dearly Father, we come to you knowing that we are unworthy of what you've offered us, and we thank you uh, for making us worthy through your Son, because his blood cleanses us of sin when we repent and are baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. We're reminded constantly that your ways are higher than our ways, and we don't always have the full picture to understand what's going on around us. Uh, we know that your creation has been marred by our sin, and, and we suffer because of that. But we praise you because you are just and faithful and that you are the judge, so we shouldn't repay evil for evil. But we ask for strength to keep that command uh, to love you and uh, our neighbors as fully as you love us. Help us then to see those who are outside of, of this family in the same way you do, beloved souls who desperately need your grace. We know that we're often tempted by favoritism and pride, and that holds us back from embracing the tremendous job that you've given us to do, to go out into a world of the lost and show them the love of the one willing to intercede for us, uh, as Abraham did for Sodom, even in the midst of that tremendous disobedience to your will. Help us to learn from Abraham's example, uh, from your son's perfect example, to pray for those who need you in their lives, that we might have an opportunity to boldly show them the good news about your son. Help us to be as bold as Abraham in our prayers and let us humbly point to the true intercessor when we go out into this community to tell them about the life-saving gospel. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Think about this. Historians tell us that they believe there is about uh, a quarter of a million people living in Sodom at this time. But only four were saved. Every single person in Sodom was a sinner. No one there who lived deserved to be saved, including the four who were saved. So if that's true, why did God save Lot and his family? What was different about them to the other quarter of a million people who weren't let out of that place? Well, the answer is because they belonged to Abraham. That's the only reason they got out alive. And the Bible teaches us that no one deserves to be saved. Not one of us is good enough to be good enough to spend eternity in glory. So if that's true, why would God bother to save us? Well, the answer is because we belong to someone who was willing to intercede for us the way that Abraham did for Lot and his family. Romans 8 assures us that when we doubt if our God is willing to save unworthy sinners like us, it tells us what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's the only reason 
will get to heaven because Christ died and he now lives to intercede for us so that we can boldly go before the throne of God in all humility and speak directly with our Father. If you want that kind of direct relationship with God, turn from your past. Don't look back just like the Lord commanded Lot and his family to do. Allow yourself to be washed in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. And then no matter what happens around us, no matter what difficulties we face in life, we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us. For Paul was persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're ready for that today, the invitation is always open, uh, night and day, but I hope that you'll take advantage of it this morning as we stand and as we sing, come to the front of the room.